0: So, on this afternoon, I'm going to talk, um, continue the exploration of um, uh, some of the 37 wings, which include the four foundations of mindfulness, the satipatthana, um, the foundations for establishing mindfulness, and, and... We have done this in very many different places in the retreat. During the invitations in the morning, we give the invitations um, starting with the breath and the body. And um, we've had uh, talks by Heather on the first foundation on the body, um, from Donald around Vedana, the second foundation. And so the trajectory of the retreat, both in the talks as well as the um, guidance in the morning, is as we start focused with the breath, um, sort of calming the mind through that aspect of concentration, we begin to open up to all of the sensations of the body and to... Um, then the nature of the feeling tones, the, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And to the third foundation, which is the uh, mindfulness of our emotional states and our mind states, our thoughts. And, as, and that's the trajectory of the retreat as it, gets, as, it, as it begins to deepen for all of us. And really to um, emphasize something that I think that we've also talked about is that that this practice has many dimensions to it, a dimensionality to it, that, that if you can feel that it's not just two-dimensional, it just doesn't, you know, go from narrow to wide, but that it has a foreground and background to it, that... that um, that all of these aspects are skillful means for um, for your deepening of your experience. So the third foundation is um, citta nupassana satipatthana. And citta is is the description of the mind. Uh, sometimes it's it's translated as mindfulness of mind. Sometimes it's translated as mindfulness of consciousness. I don't personally prefer that translation, because we um, import so many meanings to the word consciousness. Um, but citta, actually, in in its in its meaning. Um, is mind heart, and so this is where we get into sort of um, cultural differences around how we hold our frameworks of how we operate in this world. You know, the sort of the Western psychological model versus the Eastern psychological model, and it. You know, I'm over. I'm probably over generalizing. Um, but in eastern psychology whether it's traditional chinese medicine or whether it's teachings from this particular tradition the mind heart is not regarded as separate it's really regarded as as one and even when we talk about mind heart the fact that it's you know in our concept it's two things it's hard to actually grok into the meaning of citta. So really to feel your way into that. I remember um, when my father was alive and he used to say, I think he went like this. I think. And so it's a, it's a, it's a pervasive way of understanding human experience that comes from a, a different sort of cultural framework. The, um, the Chinese character Xing can be translated as mind or heart, and um, and so it's very interesting within j- traditional Chinese medicine that that whenever there's a mind-heart split, it's a treatable disease, <laughs> which means that from their per- point of view, everybody <laughs> in Western culture could be is treatable. <laughs> so it 's a different framework and and to just you know um, we go through the distinctions of the emotional landscape and the mental landscape because we come from a different perspective, and then what i 'd like to do is sort of tie it up in the end in 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 talking about them together again, and you can feel the you know you can feel the ambiguities around the boundaries between mind and heart. For example, in sort of strong emotional states like fear, which has come up in many of the practice discussions. Is fear a thought? Or is it a feeling? Is it an emotion? And when that sense of fear arises, is it instigated by a thought? or does the thought create the emotional feeling you know these are this is actually I don't actually have the answer for you but it might be a really interesting place for you to explore when the mind is quiet and a strong emotion arises so can we bring that that place of investigation that that John was talking about in the seven factors, that first factor of awakening, that it's really hard to stay mindful when we're not curious, when we 're bored, and investigate um, even the the mo- more intense or difficult experiences that we have in this in this place of mind heart. so one of the translations that I do appreciate for the third Foundation is mindfulness of the state of mind. And that feels more encompassing to me of both the emotional landscape and the content that, that, that circulates in, um, in this muscle up here. And so as we go into exploring this emotional landscape, you know, just to say that we have this cultural, even if it's subtle, um, uh, slight aversion or, or, um, uh, conditioning around feeling states, around emotions. So there's this, uh, cartoon that I love is that, you know, there, cause I used to be a clinical therapist and, and so, you know, um, there's the therapist and there's the, uh, client and uh, the client says, I still seem to be having these feelings. Can we up the dosage? <laughs> <laughs> and there's a way in which we, you know, that, that, that humorous image is, is still pushing away. It's the reason why it's funny, right? It's because it, there's a little bit of truth in that. And that's what makes humor sort of um, resonate with us. So feeling the feelings, allowing that, that uh, aspect of paying attention to meet the moment for what it is, to really meet the entire emotion for what it is, to the best of our ability. And the invitation is really to start with that first foundation is to feel it in the body. I think it's been said before that that through all of this practice, even if you just focused on one foundation, the Buddha said that, you know, freedom is possible. The Vedana practice is so important in the emotional landscape because it helps us refrain from reactivity. It doesn't mean that we don't have all of the responses. It doesn't mean that, that, you know, the strong emotions don't come up. It means that we don't have to be lost in them. That being aware of your emotions is not the same experience as being lost in them. And I think that John was saying this morning about pouring gasoline on the fire, pouring fuel on the fire. And that awareness is already beginning to recondition our patterns of being lost in our emotions. So you can feel, maybe in your own histories, the, um, the experience of being depressed at your depression, or angry at your anger, or um, frustrated at some resentment. And so this compounding effect when we're not aware when we're not conscious um, is is the state of a mind that's lost, and so just the awareness itself gives some freedom it gives some space the uh, one of the um, teaching images is, is when you have an, an intense emotion that arises, um, it's like this raging bull in a very small barn. And, you know, the, the bull is, you know, bucking, it's, 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 um, it's agitated, and it's probably going to, you know, hit the walls, hit the roof, hit the floor, and destroy the barn as well as hurt itself. But if you place that raging bull into this landscape that has no, you know, that has no boundaries to it, what happens to it? Eventually it's going to calm down. Eventually that energy will begin to dissipate or change. And so part of our practice is allowing the mindfulness to create that landscape so that the energy can just move through because that's all the emotional experience is. As you can feel in these intensities of of anger or frustration, you can feel the vibration, you can feel the heat, you can feel the four elements, you can feel um, the, um, the, the moistness, the dryness, and then it changes. So invite yourself to just also be aware of your attitude towards the emotional experience itself. Can you begin to relax into the fact that, as, as um, Heather was, was describing in her talk around the acronym RAIN, that, that every human being has an emotional life. Every human being has um, an emotional um, landscape that ebbs and flows. And so allowing the emotions into your experience more, accepting them more, and not necessarily hanging on to them or believing that they are who you are. the Tibetans have a, a practice that they call um, feeding the demons, feeding the intense emotions that arises. And, and I'm not going to describe it in, in detail, but it's, part of it is, is that first foundation, finding the intense emotion or the demon in the body, in the experience. Where do you, where do you feel it in the body? And then how do you visualize it? if you had to give it a persona, a persona. So what does it look like and what does it, uh, does, what does it want? The third step is, is you actually become the demon itself. You imagine yourself, you, you exchange yourself for other and you place yourself in the demon's shoes and you ask, you know, what do I need? What does the demon need? And the fourth step is to actually feed that demon. Is you become the nectar that the emotional state requires. And you, and you offer yourself to that. And that demon becomes an ally as all difficult experience is in our life. That as challenging as difficult experiences are, they actually make us stronger. They actually give us strength and, and those, those characteristics of stamina and courage. And, so how does these difficult emotional experiences or challenges actually transform into our allies? And really that whole process of feeding the demon is really a process of loving-kindness. It's really simply meeting the emotional state with kindness. So even if judgment, this is one of the invitations of the, of the um, guided pieces around the breath or the body, even if judgment were to arise in your experience as, a, as practice, can you not judge the judgment? Can you simply meet the judgment with kindness? and begin to notice the, the entire range of your experience, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. I think we've mentioned that, that one of Thich Han's practices is, is, if there's a difficult emotional state or a problem that arises, where is, where is the part of your experience that's not hurting? Where is the non-problem? There's a, there's a um, adage that is, that is of unknown attribution, but I think it speaks to this truth. We have no right to ask when difficult emotions arise, why did this happen to me? Unless we ask the very same question for every moment of happiness that comes our way. Isn't that true? Because we focus, we think that our life is this particular sorrow, and it it is not. There is no life that is only about the 10,000 sorrows. And we forget. So the mindfulness practice is what encourages us to remember that there are the joys as well. And so, you know, as you, as you move through a deepening of and a, and a, uh, a stilling of your practice, um, some of you are describing in your, in your meetings with us um, this place of stillness or calm. Sometimes it feels like nothing's happening really allow the mindfulness to be aware of what is calm. What is tranquility? Because these are emotional states too, they just happen to be a little bit more subtle. And often, in that place of subtle, we overlook it, we miss it. Because we actually live, you know, those super fabulous times, those highs, the bliss, pretty well. We also live the lows really well. You know, we know that they're there. There may be a project to work on if we're depressed. Or if, I'll go into anger in a little bit, but there's, there's a way in which we can sort of um, um, work these difficult emotions. But that neutral place, that place that isn't so melodramatic, we often aren't aware of. And most of our life is in this range. And yet, you know, we're waiting, constantly waiting for a better moment, because they're not so dramatic. So really allow the attention to fall into this middle range of experience because contentment is actually part of freedom. Uh, The Buddha, I don't have it written down, but uh, one of the passages of the Buddha said, is, I'm paraphrasing, um, people who are not satisfied um, are poor no matter how much wealth that they have but people who know contentment are rich, wealthy beyond any imagination, even if they're poor. And these foundations weave into each other. They support each other. They support the deepening uh, refinement of your awareness. So for these intense emotions like, for example, anger and rage, bringing your Vedana practice into it. Because on some level, we know that some of these intense emotions aren't that helpful. You know, they tend to flood our experience, they, we tend to get lost in the story. Um, well, if we know they're not very helpful, why are we still still drawn into the experience. So my own exploration of this is is that it is inviting my awareness to get more and more refined. Because, for example, with an experience like anger, I know that anger is not usually helpful. Especially if I'm sitting in a meditation hall and there's nothing actually making me angry. (laughs) And yet anger arises. And when I look into it on a deeper and deeper level, and I look into the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral aspects of this experience, I begin to discover that anger has a lot of pleasant sensations. You know, you can feel the heat and the vibration and the adrenaline and the endorphins that come up and the self-righteousness these are pleasant sensations and what happens to pleasant sensations when we're not minutely aware of them we want more that's just the un- that's just the unconscious mind and that's where that's where the, this practice of Veda really exploded for me. That I began to realize that it is such a tool to, to be able to stop before feeding or pouring sort of fuel on the fire. That, that I don't have to be seduced by these pleasant sensations and that's all they are. Someone in one of the meetings um, was talking about uh, noticing this this irritation or frustration, the wanting for things to be different. And then as as we went into the practice discussion, there was a realization that the wanting things to be different was actually the aversion to sadness or some emotion that was arising. The unpleasantness of the emotion itself was creating this this layer of wanting things to be different. And then on top of that layer was the frustration or the irritation. So just noticing the unpleasantness of sadness can really be preventative of the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth arrows that we tend to give our own experience. Ajahn Buddha Dasa says about Vedana, I think this is quite profound, even though we're working with Vedana on these, on these minute levels, these subtle levels. Why do we bother talking so much about feeling tone? Why is it necessary to include them in this line of practice? Why not hurry on to Vipassana and get to enlightenment as fast as possible? Once we can regulate the feeling tone, we are able to keep life on the correct path. When we are foolish about the Vedana, we fall under the power of and become slaves to materialism, which always happens when we indulge in material pleasures, that is, the flavors of feelings. All the crises occurring in this world have their origin in people not understanding Vedana giving in to Vedana, and being enamored with Vedana. They entice us to act like this, which leads to disagreements, quarrels, conflicts, and eventually war. Sometimes they even lead to world wars, all because people suffer defeat through the deceptions of Vedana. So, we start incrementally, even with this third foundation of being aware of emotions and thoughts, using Vedana as a support to begin to tease apart what is this emotional experience. This is not, even though it, it, sometimes feels really challenging. This is a practice that is totally accessible to us all. So in um, in Oakland um, there is um, more and more mindfulness trainings going on in the elementary schools. It's quite inspiring. And um, and so there's this one story of um, um, they, they do 15 minutes of mindfulness meditation in these, these um, classrooms, um, uh, second, third, fourth, fifth grades. And um, uh, in one of the classes, uh, this young boy, I think, under the age of 10, came up to the mindfulness teacher and said, guess what? And the teacher said, What? I just discovered something about my mind. And she said, what? When I'm angry, I don't have to do anything about it. That is something that everybody can learn. This is an insight that, you know, for, a, for an eight or nine-year-old kid in Oakland can transform so much more than just who that child is so um, I also tell this story because it relates to this 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 uh, story in the elementary schools that um, the us army is is doing mindfulness trainings uh, on for the military um, deployments into Afghanistan and Iraq, partially to um, prevent PTSD and some of the other mental health situations that come up with uh, combat. Um, But this is the report from one of the veterans um, who who has been deployed to Iraq. He said that he was out to dinner after one of these trainings, and um, was with a bunch of friends. When a customer at a nearby table said that he and his friends were being obnoxiously loud, the veteran said, at one time I would have thrown the guy out the window and gone for the jugular. But guided by these new techniques, he fought the temptation and decided to buy the man a beer instead. Later the guy came over and apologized. this training is a reconditioning of our mental and emotional landscapes that's so integral to reducing suffering in our lives and it affects so much more than than just our own experience it's in both of these cases for the young boy and the and the and the veteran It's noticing the impulse behind the emotion. It's noticing the energy of the emotion and not needing to act. That is such a highly evolved state of being. Noticing the emotion, noticing the impulse, and not needing to act on it. It is not about repressing the emotion. It's not about denying the emotion. Just because you're not, react- you're not in reactivity, doesn't mean you're not fully engaged. You're simply responding to it from a place of freedom. And so, um, there's this image of the Buddha. The Buddha, when after the, his full awakening, Was not free from pain or challenges. Uh, In the suttas, he's visited, he's revisited by Mara, I think, more than 30 or 40 times. He also had a lot of physical um, uh, injuries and and pain. But each time um, Mara came, the Buddha had the same response over and over again. I see you, Mara. I'm aware of you. And as soon as he says that, as soon as the Buddha says that, the language is something like, and um, Mara dissipates in a a wisp of air and floats away. This is... um, Written by uh, a practitioner at, at one of uh, a different retreat um, uh, that I was teaching on the East Coast. Last night I sat with rage. I was a little sleepy, but I walked and then came back to um, try a sit at the "E" at the edge of drowsiness. And as I sat there, I saw rage off in the distance, ambling along in my field. Rage had been, bif- been there before, throwing me off kilter and leaving me breathless. I spotted him and instead of running, I tried asking him in for tea. Sure, he said, and I was a little surprised. So he came in, and I imagined he would fit in my house, but I was mistaken. Rage, you see, was a lot bigger than that. In fact, he was so large that when, I tr- when he tried sitting down inside, he spilled out all around and out in and around outside of me. My first inclination was to be frightened, fear. I didn't think I would be able to find his edges and I thought I would start suffocating like I felt each time he had visited earlier. But for whatever reason, maybe it was my friend drowsiness, I don't know. I laughed. I then said, my, aren't you awfully big? And Rage saw my laughter and he didn't like that. So he recoiled and started to get up as if to leave. And then I felt powerful and excited all at once. And I thought, so this is, I can, this is how I can deal with rage. I can mock him. And I was feeling quite clever with myself until within a split second, maybe it was my friend drowsiness again. I remember rage was my f- guest. So I said something that came into my lo- mind like, no, sit down, you are here now. I can learn from you. I want to know your Buddha nature too. And then Rage quieted and sat back down. And then the strangest thing happened. He got smaller and smaller. My friend Drowsiness, Drowsiness spoke. Rage is made of ringing tears. It's purity that turns to liquid and fits into a teaspoon. And and because it's so concentrated and pure, that's why it's so bitter and strong. And sure enough, rage now was sitting in liquid form in a teaspoon. And as I peered into it, I looked and it became a drop. And then an atom. And then poof. Rage seemed to have disappeared. At least I couldn't find him. And I asked my friend Drowsiness, where did rage go? Go? Why, he was empty all along, just like you. Now, I know that wasn't the last visit. I know I will see more of rage. And I even know that this was more imagery than meditation. I don't quite understand everything drowsiness told me last night, but next time I'll try to have cookies along with tea, just in case rage decides to stay a little longer. (laughs) Creating some kindness, whether it's through imagery, through your metta practice, to allow the emotions to be who they want to be because they are part of the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. So in terms of the mental landscape, in terms of um, the, the mental formations that we create, sometimes we think that the mind the thinking mind should be more controllable and less volatile than the emotional states. But, you know, as we sit, I am sure that you find that the mind is as unbridled as any emotion that we have. In Pali, there's this word, papancha, which kind of sounds sort of like what it is, which is the thought that feeds thoughts, the proliferation. Of thoughts, the unending stream. When we get lost in thought, just like we get lost in emotions. So um, this is—I'm not going to read all of it, but this is a—I like the title, "The Best of My Worst Thoughts," and it's a—it's a description of a hypothetical book. And um, the the books, the you know how the table of contents goes. How to use this book? Page one. Um, highlights page 6 and then it starts with the chapters my mother page 7 what if page 2980 (laughs) and it goes on and the sample page page (laughs) 5333 If I hire a nitpicker to get rid of my son's head lice, does that make me a bad mother? But if I do it myself, I might not get get them all, and when I do get them, then I'll have to shave his head. Everyone will think I have cancer or he has cancer. Actually, I do have a strange pain in my knee and I can't remember banging it or anything. They say cancer doesn't hurt, but I remember the TV movie I saw when my mother was concerned because her son was limping and it turned out to be cancer. Now there was a good mother. Who will speak at my funeral? I have no friends." Will my, my Will my husband marry that idiot he dated before we got married? My son will be miserable, and it goes on. The Dhammapada: We are what we think. All we are, all that we are, arises with our thoughts. Our thoughts, with our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. And so because mind and heart are really the same, many of the same supports that that we um, have been talking about around the vedana practice, um, around feeling them in the body, because you can feel the thoughts in the body as well, are the same techniques or the invitations that are offered for for thoughts as well. But thoughts also may have some slightly different characteristics because of the content, because of the storyline. And f- sometimes for me, when I have this reoccurring intrusive cycle of, of the same thought running through my mind over and over again, there's some anxiety. And so, uh, you know, one thing is to... Um, Explore the emotional underpinning. What is the anxiety? Sometimes the anxiety is that you simply f- think you're going to forget this important thought that you have. That there's some great thought, that that line of thinking, and you w- want to remember it, so you're constantly rolling it around in your mind. Well, for heaven's sake, write it down. <laughs> write it down and... Put it in the corner of your room. So this is what I did because in, in one of my three-month practices at IMS, because I did have this discursive mind. And I would think that these things were like insights for the world. And so because I didn't want to forget them, I would just write them down. It wouldn't be a journal. It would just be, you know, the highlight of the thought. And I put it in the corner of the room at the end of the retreat, so the exercise, it doesn't stop just by physically letting the thought go. The second part of the exercise is at the end of the retreat, return to that pile of paper and read them. And determine, are they worth keeping or not? And that's part of your mindfulness practice. You get to see how the mind works. So the awareness of the thought, the awareness of the thought is not getting lost in the thought. That's the R of the acronym RAIN, recognize. We have this peculiar habit when we're not aware of the thought process. We have this really peculiar habit of believing our thoughts. We believe almost every single thought that we have do you apply that standard, do you apply that experience to anybody else in the world? Do you, do you entrust anybody else's thinking the way that... You, why are your thoughts so damn special <laughs> that you actually believe the self-judgment and the criticism and, 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 and all of that process? So one of the things that is helpful is, is to try to get some space from that papancha. So if I have that cycle of self-judgment or judgment of others, one of the exercises that I do is to pretend that stream of thinking is coming from the person in front of me. And do I believe that? You know, just pretend, just to, just to um, allow yourself. Um, you know, what if somebody else was thinking like this? You know, doubt is a very common hindrance. And we doubt the teachings, we doubt our abilities, we doubt our self-worth. Just turn the trajectory of doubt to doubting your thoughts. You know, just hold it all lightly. So in that way of just simply meeting your thoughts, you accept them more. You allow them. That's the A of RAIN. You allow them, but you believe them less. You know, just... just Hold them lightly. Look at how a thought might arise, just like the breath. I had this experience when I was um, on the edge of the Grand Canyon once, and because it's so dry and the vista is so um, expansive, you know, there were clouds that were forming and then passing away. And that's how I experience when my mind is still, that's how I can experience thoughts. You can see the precursor. You can see that there's this energy that's arising. And sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's emotional. And it's like the cloud that forms. And then if you're simply with it, without, without feeding the content of the thought, it kind of goes away too. And then another one arises. Dear teachers, I'm about to lose my mind. Does it get easier? Is it supposed to? Just needed to share. Many blessings. <laughs> it's just a cycle of thought. And it, in that one note, it just, you know, the cloud came and it left. We are so much more than we think we are. We are so much more than the thinking mind. So just this exercise, you know, as I say these terms, see which ones land on you that, that we use to describe our experience as maybe we call ourselves Buddhist, or Jewish, or Christian, or Muslim, or male, or female, or transgender, or old, or young, or middle-aged, gay, straight, white, black, Latina, Asian, mixed-race, rich, poor, educated, educated, not-so-educated, middle-class, working-class, student, employed, unemployed. None of these terms, and there are millions of them, right? None of these terms, none of these concepts fully can even become close to describing any life in this room. We are so much more than who our thoughts are. And who we think we are constantly influences our behavior. Our perceptions and judgment of ourselves, our projections and judgments on others, what we can and can't do in our lives. We all have this and we don't have to identify with these thoughts that arise. That's the N of RAIN refraining from personalizing it. This metaphor of rain I also love because the rain which is on us is also a metaphor for loving kindness. That loving kindness practice is like a gentle rain that falls indiscriminately on all beings. And this practice of rain of recognition, awareness, investigation, and non-identification is a practice that can fall on all experience without exception. Mahagosananda was one of the mm, amazing monks from Cambodia during the times of the killing fields. He um his whole family was uh, perished in that uh time of Cambodian history, and and um he was training as a monk in Thailand during that time. And um so he suffered deep personal but also um, cultural tragedy in, in a country that was um, torn apart and ravaged by, by uh, this senseless war. And he writes, even going through that suffering, his, his whole practice was around the practice of mindfulness and metta. He says, the thought manifests as the word, the word manifests as the deed, the deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. Character gives birth to the destiny, so watch your thoughts with care, and let them spring from love, born out of respect for all beings. The inclination of this practice is the inclination not just to be kind to our thoughts. It's really to be kind to our life, to be kind to our human condition. Out of respect for all beings. And that we create a collective destiny that has less suffering and greater freedom in it. I just want to go back to the unity of the mind-heart and the complexity, you know, as we approach the mind-heart with our awareness and kindness practice. You know, all of what we share is a finger pointing into the moon. You know, it's not the experience of the moon itself, that's the Zen imagery that... All of we can guide you, we can support you, we can offer you, but we can't actually provide your awakening or, or practice. All of these techniques and all of these these ingredients have to be woven through your own experience. This. Um, Uh, Let's see. There's a story that um, is not so much about emotions and thoughts, but it is about practice. It's about this photographer in India who gives his work for free. Mm, It's it's just an unconditional practice, and he was asked once, "Well, why does he do that?" And he says, "Because." three eight-year-old monks stood on a cliff edge and saved my life. And so then someone asked, well, tell me the story behind it. And apparently he was invited to um, play some football with with these young monks. And um, so in order to get to the playing field, he had to go up this cliff. And he slipped. And he slipped on this ledge that, that was precipitous and he almost fell you know, like a thousand feet. And before he even had the thought that um, uh, a one wrong move could, could be a fatal plunge, three of them, no higher than the middle of my chest, their red robes flapping in the wing, holding hands and forming a spontaneous boy-monk fence between him and the next world. Without debate or deliberation, these children had put their lives on the line for me. I don't even know their names. And the experience changed his life so that um, he said, I couldn't go back to who I used to be. I admit, I was somewhat of a dishonest person, as which of us aren't prior to the event. But afterwards... I noticed a newfound inability to play games with falsehood and my life went, underwent a radical change. So what I wanted to share about this was the question he was asked afterwards. He said, he, the question that was asked afterwards was, what do you think the connection between these three eight-year-old monks and your transformation was? And so Angkor, who is the ma- name of the man, sat there and thought, And then his final answer was, I don't know. I don't know. Not knowing is a very sacred place for your sacred path. Don't overlook this place of not knowing. You may not know how this practice works. We may not know how this practice serves you but we'd have the faith that it does. And I would posit to say that we don't have to know how it works. The invitation is to feel and be aware of the present moment that is arising. So one last story about this place of mind-heart, complexity of practice, meeting it, and not knowing. I wanted to share with you some words written by my son, Jonathan, that he left behind having passed away three weeks after he wrote them at the age of 24. They have served as an inspiration to me through many rough moments. And these are the words of this mother's son. We can let go of self-pity and bathe in the belief that nothing is impossible with the help of a well-exercised imagination. We can let go of all the what-ifs and the why-me's and the nobody knows and accept the fact that like it or not, we are alive, we are moving. We are creating a vacuum through which time will not let us escape. Reverent or not, we must accept the beauty of this." And the mother writes, Everybody suffers, I see that. And yet losing a child unexpectedly, losing this child unexpectedly, after having spent the better part of this life trying to be a good parent, brought me to my knees in realizing how important these teachings really are to living one precious moment at a time. The 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, as is so often mentioned, thank you so much. Blessings and gratitude. She doesn't say how she made it to the other side of suffering. She doesn't map out the technique of mindfulness or kindness. That is a path that she walked through her own unique experience. But what she does say to us is that there's freedom. that she is the example of the parable of Kisigatami that Heather spoke about. That in this culture, in this time, freedom is possible. And that all of us have had experiences like that, of moments of freedom. And may we continue to live them.